Revelation chapter 1. It's easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible. But uh, if you want a page number, it is 1,655. 1,655. Page 1,655. Revelation. Revelation. Chapter 1. Today we'll be reading the first eight verses, although we'll be considering just the first three. Here now, the Word of God. Indeed, the Word of Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we begin today a series on the book of Revelation. I don't know how long this series is going to last. We'll probably go at least through the first three chapters. We may continue on through the rest of the book. I will note that this book of Revelation has been one of the most difficult for Bible interpreters. Almost every Bible commentary on this book has begun by noting the great variety of views and the fact that many feel uncomfortable with this book. It is part of what we call the apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic. 
You'll notice the title of the sermon today, Introduction to the Apocalypse. Okay, that's a technical word. Apocalypse, apocalypsis in the Greek. Now, when you think of apocalyptic literature, what you're talking about is the use of symbols and pictures, and often, many times, very strange symbols and pictures. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I dare say that many of y'all uh, have read the book of Revelation before and just sort of thrown up your hands, or perhaps been scared by it, perhaps been alarmed by it because of all of these amazing and wondrous and difficult things, and really, not, not just amazing, but in some ways terrifying pictures that we have here. Now, other scripture that uses, that, that is what we call apocalyptic scripture, uh, would include the book of Ezekiel. We read today from Ezekiel chapter 1 to give a taste of that, to show how there are others, other uh, passages like that. Daniel, certain chapters in Isaiah, and Matthew chapter 24. This book has remained a mystery to many. Calvin did not write a commentary. John Calvin, the great reformer, did not write a commentary on Revelation. On the other hand, let me say that there are all kinds of wild views that have been put forth which just might as well not have been written. Now, you'll notice in your bulletin, now I need you to buckle your seatbelts with me on this, children. I want you to buckle your seatbelts with me on this because we're going to talk about some technical issues right now. And I'm, I have a reason for doing this and I'll explain in just a moment. There is a question, first of all, of how to approach the book, how to approach the book. For example, there are those who would take a futurist, future perspective, almost everything, almost uh, totally in the future mostly concerning the second coming of Christ. That's one way of looking at this book. Then you have the opposite of that, what is called the preterist. You hear the word pre, which means before. And so the preterist view would say that this book is dealing mostly with things in John's day, perhaps extending to the fall of the Roman Empire, the final judgment uh, coming at the very end of the book. Then you have the idealist, ideas, ideal, uh, which, it, which would take the position that in between messages for the first century, prophecies of the far future, the book deals with principles which are always valid for the Christian experience, but no necessary connection to any particular events in history. And then finally, the historicist, position, history, historicist, which would say that the book of Revelation is a chart of human history between the two comings of Christ, his first coming in his being born of a virgin and his second coming as judge. And so that it's a chart of human history by which one can see the rise of the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, and also the rise and the threat of Islam. 
So those are your four basic approaches to how you can approach the book of Revelation. Now one other little thing, stay seatbelted please, and that is the question of the millennium. Now you know we talk about the millennial generation. Children, you've heard the term the millennial generation. Why the millennial? It's those who've been born in the 2000s. Most of our young people here have been born in the 2000s because we are now in the third millennium. So this is the millennial generation. Millennium means a thousand years, a thousand years. And at the very end of this book, Revelation chapter 20, the book talks about the millennium or the thousand years. So there are three basic positions. One is the pre-millennial, pre, before. In other words, the idea that Christ will come back before a literal 1,000 year period, pre-millennial. There is the ah-millennial, ah means not, so it's the idea that the thousand years is symbolic of the entire church age. And then thirdly, the post-millennial, post means after, the idea that Christ will return after the millennium, which would be a golden age in history. Now, because people have talked about this, have, have used these terms, they tend to abbreviate them. So, for example, instead of saying premillennial, people will just say premill, amillennial, amill, postmillennial, postmill. So, you often hear these abbreviations for these terms, which does mean I do have to mention two other positions. One is the panmill position. It's the view that everything's going to pan out in the end every, anyway. And then the treadmill position. It's the view of someone who keeps going around and around on a, in a circle on these views, not sure, where, not sure where he's going to end up. That was a joke. All right. But why mention, why I said, I wanted, I, I was very explicit. Why, why do I mention these views and approaches? What is my point in doing so? Well, first of all, they they are part of historical theology. They're part of the history of doctrine. And so you, you will hear these terms from time to time, and you should be aware of them. I, you're not going to get a final exam or even a midterm after the sermon, I promise you. But I want you to be aware of them. And um, as a matter of fact, one of the reasons why I mention these is because I know from being your pastor that you want to know. I know that. I know that. And you probably are not going to hear this kind of discussion in very many churches, this kind of technical discussion, this kind of in-depth discussion. But I know that you want to know, and that's why I mention these things. I would also say, note that these reflect different views and presuppositions. That's going to be important, not only for Revelation, but perhaps for interpreting other parts of Scripture. And the third reason why is because we can appreciate that genuine believers in Christ can disagree on these matters. Genuine believers in Christ can disagree as to these particular things. What is important to know in the general scheme of things is that Christ is coming back. 
There will be a general resurrection someday. There are some folks who deny that. But there will be a general resurrection day. If you deny it, you're a heretic. Let's be very clear about that. There is a judgment day coming. Jesus is coming back. Everyone who has ever lived on this earth will be raised from the dead and will appear before his judgment seat. And what is also important to know is that Christ wins. To use the Latin phrase from the Middle Ages, Christus Victor. Christ is the one who is victorious. Now John is the one uh, who wrote this book. John, the John whom Jesus loved, one of the disciples, one of the apostles, the brother of James and son of Zebedee, the one who authored the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Most scholars believe it was written around 90 to 95 A.D., very end of the first century A.D., but others, and again this goes back to their, the way that they look at it, others would say that it was written about 25 years before that, 25 to 30 years before that, during the reign of Nero. Nero was the Caesar, you may remember children, who fiddled while Rome burned. That's what Nero is infamous for. Well, let's look today, then, at the... There are three, three points. The first is the revelation of Christ. The second is the signification. And the third is the blessing. So, here we find the revelation of Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean? Well, I believe that this is a reference to Christ as the one who is the producer or the author of Revelation. In other words, it's not just that it reveals something about Christ, that is certainly true, but it is a reference to Jesus in his role as prophet, in his role as the very word of God come in the flesh, but now he is the one who is actually proclaiming and revealing this revelation. I mentioned a moment ago about the word apocalypsis, apocalypse. That word means an unveiling, like a statue that is being unveiled, or maybe a street sign when a street is being renamed. I was, uh, when uh, Newport was renamed uh, for Andrew J. Hairston. I was privileged to be there. and So they pulled back the sign, and some of y'all may be familiar with uh, other instances of that. That's what it is. So think of it that way. It's an unveiling. But what's interesting about it, so it's, it's revealing something. It's unveiling something. But what's being revealed are the mysteries of the kingdom. And so at the same time that it reveals there's also something very mysterious about it because you've got all these symbols at the same time. And therefore, that's what makes understanding this book so difficult. So, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. Now, Jesus, as the Son of God, obviously knows all things. He is God. But at the same time, the Father has commissioned Jesus to reveal these things. 
So the Father has given to Jesus the commission, the mandate, actually to reveal these things. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. His who sent me. He was reflecting what the Father had given to him. John 14, verse 10. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. In John 17, the great priestly, high priestly prayer of Christ, John 17, verses 7 and 8, Jesus says in prayer to his Father, Now they have known all things which thou hast given me are from thee, for I have given to them the words which thou hast given me, and have believed that I came forth from thee, and they have believed that thou hast sent me. It's interesting, isn't it? That even though Jesus, as being God, knows all things, yet at the same time, this is what the Father has given to him to show to his servants. So, which God gave to him to show those things which must come to pass quickly. So you see that word to show? You see that word show there? You see, this book of Revelation is a book of word pictures. It's like a photo album. We were up in uh, New Hampshire uh, just a week or so ago and uh, staying in a house right on Lake Winnipesaukee. And um, there was a photo album there of these, of these folks having taken what had been a, um, a house that was you know, in very bad repair and over a period of several years actually were able to make it into this wonderful house. But there was, there was a photographic record of that. There was a photo album, if you will, with regard to that. Or think of other photo albums that tell a story, and that's what you have here. Many, there are many visions and many scenes throughout the book of Revelation. John opens up before us what was revealed to him. It's like going through a door, or may, maybe it's being like it. Maybe it's like being at Disney World. Being on the ride, it's a small world, and so you see a scene, and and then the the boat goes a little bit. It gets dark, and then the boat goes a little bit further, and there's another scene, or maybe Pirates of the Caribbean, right? You go from one scene to another to another. But children, here's, young people, here's the important thing I want you to know. That unlike Disney World or Disneyland, what is being revealed here is not fiction, it is truth. It's not fantasy land. It's truth, it's reality. But it's by means of these glorious pictures that are given to us. And so this is to show to his servants. To show to his servants. A couple things to note here. One is that we who are Christians are the slaves, the slaves of Christ. We are the servants of Christ. This is the way that 
that uh, Paul also speaks of himself. I'm the bondservant. I'm the servant of Christ. And so we who are serv- who are believers are the servants or slaves of Christ, his servants. But also, please note that one of the themes in Revelation is the warfare between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. And so, to show his servants, that is to say, Christ's servants, it is specifically for those of us who are the servants of Christ that this book has been given. Because you see, in the first century, the the church was in a fight for its life. And we could come to that situation today, perhaps as well. The devil's kingdom takes many different shapes in this book. There are going to be many different pictures of Satan's kingdom, manifestations of Satan's kingdom, of the devil's kingdom, and of the warfare between Christ on the one hand and the devil on the other. The warfare, therefore, between the servants of Christ and the servants of the devil, including those in government and those perhaps in relig- who are religious figures as well. And so I must pause here, my friends, and ask you, whose servant are you? Whose servant are you? So, we have then this picture show to his servants showing those things which must come to pass quickly. Which must come to pass. Why must they come to pass? Well, there's a necessity to these things because God is sovereign. And it's on his timetable And these things are going to come to pass. These things must be worked out in history, and they will be worked out in history, but which must come to pass quickly. I believe by the use of that word quickly, at least two things are being emphasized. Number one, there's an urgency to what was being revealed. It is important. take, Take heed of that. Pay attention. Pay attention. These things must come to pass quickly. It's urgent. But also, it is at the very least the beginning of these things that we see being worked out. To use the Greek word, the kairos, or the time, the particular time in history, the kairos is at hand. The time is is at hand. I'm not saying it's, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon. No, it's saying that in terms of history, in terms of, of the timeline of history, that now the kairos, the, the, the things that are going to result ultimately in the final consummation when Christ comes back, those things have a beginning already. We live in the last days from, the be- from when Christ as- rose from the dead and ascended to heaven until now. We have been technically in the last days, biblically speaking, for 2,000 years. 
the start of what will eventually come about at the very end of history already has begun. And therefore, the time is at hand. These things must come to pass quickly. So that is the revelation of Christ. Now, secondly, the signification. Notice what it says here in uh, verse 1. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. So who is the one, first of all, who is signifying? Why, it is Christ. It is Jesus Christ who is signifying. Now that word, to signify, is related to a word called semeon, just like a semaphore, maybe an, you know, an old railroad signal. A semaphore, not just had the arm, you see, it wasn't just the, uh, the arm that was there, uh, but it also had like a light that would shine through as well. And so it's, but a semaphore then is a, is a sign, it's a signal that the, the train engineer had to obey. He couldn't proceed if it was, if it was uh, horizontal. He could proceed cautiously, it was at 45 degree angle, or if it was straight upright, he could proceed full speed ahead. But that was a semaphore, okay, that was a semaphore. And so this is a, it is a sign for the railroad. Well, here we have a sign, a signification, a signifying of divine revelation. Now what does this mean then, that Christ signified the book? Well, first of all, God the Father granted to the Son this revelation to give to his people. He gave this revelation for you and for me and for all of his people. God the Father gave this to the Son to give to us. But secondly, notice that Christ has given this revelation in signs, in symbols. Why is that? At least two reasons. Number one, the human mind cannot grasp the mind of God. And so he needs to condescend to us. Just like a mother talking to her child. She has to talk baby talk. She has to, before the child grows up, she has to talk very in, in, uh, in terms that the child can understand. And so it is with God in relating to us. He condescends to us to help us understand. Just like you had pictures in the Old Testament, so you have these pictures in the New Testament as in the book of Revelation. And then secondly, why has, God, has Christ given it in signs or in symbols? Because the very imagery will excite the imagination to explore the book and its meaning ride in Disney World. You can't wait for the next scene to appear. It excites the imagination and wants you to have a deeper understanding. So two 
brief points of application at this point before we go on. Number one, do not read this book literalistically, but rather symbolically. What do I mean by that? It means you have to take into account the fact that there are symbols all over the place. Therefore, you have to be careful in terms of how you read the book. There, uh, what is the millennium? A thousand years. It's ten times ten times ten. It's ten cubed. It's a, it's a picture of perfection or a picture of this golden period. Does that mean that it's literally a thousand years? No, not necessarily. It could very well be a symbol of a golden period. The same thing with all, when you read this book all over the place, you've got these signs, you've got these symbols, and what you are supposed to do then is to dig deep and ask, what, by, by using scripture, by scripture comparing scripture, what is God conveying by, what is Christ conveying by means of these symbols, by means of these pictures? So that's the first thing. Do not read this book literalistically, but rather symbolically. And secondly, this book is precious in all its symbolism. It is precious in all of its symbolism. I had a professor once at City University of New York who mocked the Bible, mocked Revelation, said, oh, all these beasties and other things that John wrote about in Revelation, you know, he must have been drunk. What blasphemy. What utter blasphemy and sacrilege. No, my friends, it is precious. These things are precious. Because Christ himself has given them for us. And so Christ signified the book, but notice also that there is mediation by means of an angel. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Revelation, that is to say, God's revelation to man has often been mediated through angels. We won't uh, take the time to, to look at the various places. I'll, they're in your bulletin. I'll simply note them. Daniel chapter 8, verse 16. Chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. Chapter 10, verses 10 and following. Zechariah 1, 9 and verse 19. Acts 7, verse 53. Galatians 3, verse 19. Revelation 22, verse 6. More than that, though, there's something else here. Angels, we need to note, have a prominent role in Scripture and in this book as well, in particular. They have a prominent role all throughout the Bible. Genesis 19, verse 1, 22, verse 11, 28, verse 12, Judges 13, verse 13. At the birth of Jesus, there were angels present, the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory be to God in the highest, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. At Jesus' resurrection, there were angels present. And at his ascension, there were angels present. And here in this book of Revelation, in chapters 5, 7, 8, 10, 11, 14, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, we see the angels that are there. So, Christ signified the book in terms of its signification. 
It's been mediated by an angel, but notice the use of John, identified humbly as the servant of Christ, not the apostle, not the one uh, whom Jesus loved, not the one in whom uh, he rested, on whose breast he rested. No, he is simply identified as the servant of Christ. And he is the one who testified to the word of God that is to say, he testified in terms of Christ and in terms of Scripture. Notice again that it is what, end of verse 2, that he bore witness to the Word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. It was in vision that this was revealed to him. So thirdly then, having seen uh, the... Um, the revelation of Christ and the signification. Thirdly, and briefly, we talk about the blessing. What blessing is this? Blessed we are, blessed we are told. Blessed is he who reads and so forth. Well, ultimately, it is eternal life. It is eternal life that is the blessing. But there's also, please note with me, there's also the sense of hopeful expectation because we read for the time is at hand the end of verse 3 the time is at hand so yes it's eternal life but there's also a hopeful expectation of all the blessings that are going to come for the time is near the time is at hand now this blessing is in connection with the Word of God. That's why we've been singing about the Word of God, the Law of God from the Psalms today. This should encourage us to dig into this book, discovering its riches and pleasures. Blessed is he who reads. This is a reference to, a, to the one who stands up, a male leader, usually a minister, sometimes an elder, sometimes a candidate for the ministry, but a solitary male leader reading scripture in public worship. Blessed is he who reads. What blessedness, what happiness to those who search the scriptures, reading them and preaching them to the congregation, but also blessed to those who hear and keep those things which are written in it. What is blessedness? Blessedness is happiness. It's deeper than that. It's joy. But, it's, but we can say it's a, it's a notion of happiness. And you notice then that those who hear, not only those who hear, as the word is read, as in public worship, that's why children need to pay attention when the word is read, when the word is preached. Blessed are those who hear, but more than that, those who keep. Those who keep the words of this prophecy. You see, listening to God's word with reverence and attentiveness is important. It brings blessing to your life. And, of course, the reference here is to those, the words of this prophecy. So what John wrote was not history at the time. It was prophesying of that which was to come. But not just, again, 
not simply. Listen to me, children. Not simply listening and listening carefully, but keeping what has been written. Listen, but keep. Listen and keep. My friend, you will be miserable in this life and in the life to come if you don't do that. You will be absolutely miserable if you don't do that. Children, older people, blessed is he who listens, who hears, and who keeps those things which are written in this prophecy. Just like James chapter 1. Remember James chapter 1? Remember what, remember what uh, James says in James 1? He says, that, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So I have two points of application. The first is this. Listen, children. Are you eager to hear the promises of Christ and rejoice in them? Are you eager to hear? Were you glad to be here today? Or is like, oh, do we have to go to church? See, if that's your attitude, oh, do we really have to be here? Oh, what time is it now? If that's your attitude, you've got a problem. If that's your attitude, you've got a problem. Are you eager to hear the promises of Christ and rejoice in them? And secondly, are you willing to heed the warnings? Because what we find in this book is the very revelation given to us by an angel from Jesus Christ. Amen. We please stand for prayer. And now our Father, we pray that the words that have been spoken here would penetrate deeply into the heart of everyone. Lord, thou dost know our hearts. We are deceivers many times of our own selves. But thou dost see. So we pray, Father, that thy spirit would work powerfully in our midst, driving away the devil and the works of the devil in this very hour, in this place.
so that Christ, the great revealer, the Son of God, the great prophet, can speak to our hearts. So be pleased to do that, O Lord, this day. Work the work of grace, of regeneration, of conversion in the hearts of any here today who know not Christ. For those who do not know Christ, give them no rest. Make them miserable until they would rest in Christ and have the full blessedness and happiness of knowing him who to know is life itself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Closing, please turn.